This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's the primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook and joining me today is my fellow co-host, Duncan Barrett. Or am I? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so you think and so the listeners assume, but you know, for for all you know, it could be someone else doing a, a pitch perfect impersonation. I mean, you know, these things happen. But does that mean someone else is writing your words for you? They are like... Directing you what to say, how to say it. Well, that's true. That yeah, that is possible. It could be that I've got a script up in front of me. I mean, you actually, you know, even even when you can see my face, you can't see what I'm looking at. So you know, who knows? And it is we do generally record in the evenings. It's very dark in the evenings. It's hard to ever be sure quite who you're talking to or who you're <laughs> podcasting with, especially with the dodgy Wi-Fi we have around these parts. So there could be like another Trek FM podcaster, like behind a curtain, telling you what to say. And it could, yeah, giving you insights yeah. into Star Trek. Yeah, actually, I usually have Brandon, uh, you know, on call on the other <laughs> line, giving me, f- feeding me tips on what to say. <laughs> well, in case you hadn't realised, listeners, to this episode is all about what, like, pretending, duplicity, romance, and duplicity, pretending to be somebody else. Uh, using someone else's words as your own. Sounds like online dating. <laughs> or catfishing, I think they call it nowadays, right? Catfishing. Yeah, it could be. You're, you're right, actually. Catfishing is, is, is pretty much what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So you probably wonder what catfishing and Star Trek have in common, but there is one episode that we're going to be talking about today and the influences of uh, what the, basically the source material for that episode which is a very famous french play which i'll get duncan to tell us about in a minute but the episode we're looking at is called looking for parmark in all the wrong places as uh, so season five episode three episode of deep space nine and it was directed by andrew robinson who also plays garrick and written by ronald d moore and i mean ronald d moore is known for writing quite serious fiction and serious drama but actually this is quite a humorous episode in which quark is taught how to seduce a Klingon woman by Worf, who's actually in love with this woman, or at least attracted to her. 
And the inspiration for this episode is, Duncan? Uh, the inspiration for this episode is the French play Serrano de Bergerac, uh, which was originally performed in 1897 in France, in Paris. Uh, it was a kind of star vehicle for a French actor called Constant Coquelin. Uh, Coquelin, then aged 56. I, you can tell I'm reading from my copy of the play. <laughs> I don't know this all the, off the top of my head. But it's a very popular play. And ever since that first performance, which was a, you know, rollicking success, it's always been sort of part of the repertoire, you know, both in France and also around the world. Uh, and I guess in terms of this episode of DS9, the productions of it that would probably have been in the back of people's minds were there was a very successful French film adaptation in 1990 with Gérard Depardieu, which I didn't manage to watch this week, but I have seen, I'm pretty sure we watched it in French class at school, which is one reason I feel, I feel slightly allergic to Gérard Depardieu, uh, quite apart from the <laughs> Alan Partridge sketch that is, is going round and round in my head, but uh, just because we seem to watch all of his films in French classes, which I hated, but... um I understand that as an excellent film. And also, uh, a couple of years before that, the Steve Martin comedy, Roxanne, which is basically a modern retelling of the Serrano story, uh, just as Looking for Palmach in All the Wrong Places is a 24th century retelling of the Serrano story. And basically what all these stories have in common is the kind of basic plot is about these two men who are both romantically interested in one woman. One of the men, Serrano, is a guy who is very witty, he's very flamboyant, he's very... Uh, um, accomplished. He's a great swordsman, uh, but he has this enormous nose and all anyone can ever see about him is his nose. And therefore he sees himself as ugly. He thinks he doesn't stand a chance with this woman who in fact is his cousin. And interestingly, I mean, you said we were talking about this one episode. There is also, of course, the next gen episode, The Nth Degree, which doesn't so much borrow the plot of Serrano de Bergerac, but it borrows from the play itself because we have in that episode, Barclay rehearsing this well, it sort of seems like a production. They're performing it in 10 forward, but then it's not really clear. They're not really doing the whole play. They're kind of doing scenes. It's more like a kind of um, a showcase or something. But anyway, working with Beverly, performing this role. And it's interesting because with Barclay, you've almost got both sides of Serrano because in that episode, he goes from being the, the guy who can't talk. The, the reason Serrano ends up helping this other guy is the other guy is very good looking, Christian, but completely tongue tied around women. He can't express himself. He can't really, um, woo a woman because he can't, he has no capacity for kind of romantic gestures or romantic language or the kind of, um, soaring oratory that Serrano is capable of. So in the play, what happens is Serrano writes letters on behalf of Christian. And in this very famous scene, he actually ends up, uh, sort of impersonating him in the dark beneath Roxanne, the love interest's balcony. Uh, and so he's speaking and she thinks that it's Christian speaking, uh, to the point where she ends up willing to kiss him and then marry him. Uh, and in the film Roxanne, set in the modern day, to the point where she ends up willing to sleep with him. And so, so this is the kind of basic setup, which you can see gets borrowed in the DS9 episode. And it also kind of gets borrowed in that TNG episode because, on the one hand, it's about Barclay learning to express himself through theatre and through playing this character. But you've also got this situation where Barclay is, because he's sort of zapped by that probe and made super brainy and everything, he, he does undergo this sort of personality transformation, which is almost another way of looking at, you know, in the Serrano play, you've got these two characters and one of them pretends to be to have the qualities of the other with Barclay you sort of have he, he he acquires that kind of um flamboyance and that kind of brilliance through sort of sci-fi means in that instance yeah so this story is really adaptable and it's interesting how adaptable it is it's been 
actually adapted uh, into 12 different films in several di- several different countries, including a film, Japanese film, set in a sort of samurai context, which I thought was quite interesting, and into opera and into 23 separate stage productions of the play. So it's actually a really adaptable story. So it doesn't surprise me that Star Trek would have taken this story and put it into an episode. But there's fundamental differences with the DS9 episode than there is with the actual story of Sarano de Bergerac, which is the fact that there are kind of two couples in the DS9 episode, whereas in the original play, there's really, it's more like a, Menage a trois, there's like three of them, right? And in, in Roxanne, the film, there's three of them. But in the actual um, DS9 episode, there's also Jadzia Dax, who is obviously interested in Worf, Worf who seems oblivious to it because he's so obsessed with this ideal Klingon woman, Grilka, who Quark is pursuing. And Jadzia's kind of there in the background, isn't she? And so she eventually asserts herself. And she's helping Quark as well as Worf is helping Quark. She is. I mean, she's sort of there in the role of the friend. And interestingly, I mean, you say in Roxanne, it's a love triangle. It is, although with all these adaptations, there's this kind of question of how do you, how does this storyline play out? Once you get past that kind of famous balcony scene, which is the sort of iconic moment that always has to be recreated one way or another, whether it's in the holodeck, whether it's, you know, uh, in the Steve Martin film, kind of in her, her front garden at night or whatever, you've always got to decide how does the story end? Because in the original play, spoiler alert, obviously, uh, it ends tragically. It, it comes to the point where Cyrano is about to kind of confess what's going on to Roxanne to explain to her that really it's it's him that she fell in love with. And then Christian, the, the young, the dashing young guy who is a bit of an airhead dies tragically. And so because he dies, it's almost too late for Serrano to say that. And his memory kind of has to be preserved. And then it's not until 15 years later at the very end of Serrano's life that finally Roxanne realizes she recognizes his voice. She recognizes that actually it was him all those years ago. And then he dies tragically as well. And so everyone dies. No one really gets what they want. Uh, but obviously in these other stories, they have to find other ways around that. And actually in Roxanne, one of the interesting things that's changed is the kind of airhead guy who's been completely tongue-tied around Roxanne, who as well as being beautiful, she's played by Daryl Hannah, as well as being beautiful, is um, an astronomer and has just discovered a comet and is very brainy and witty and intelligent herself. Um, and, and sort of intellectually not his equal. There's this other woman who is the bartender in the local bar and actually he discovers he he isn't tongue-tied around her. They have a lot more in common um, and so he kind of runs off with her. So they kind of get him out of the picture that way. And in the DS9 storyline, you've got obviously Dax on the sidelines, as you say, basically flirting with Worf pretty obviously from the very get-go, making it clear that she's interested in Worf, uh, playing the role of the friend both to Worf and Quark, but kind of ultimately at the end having to really kind of bash Worf over the head with the fact that she's there, she's available, she's clearly interested in him. Uh, you know, she has to start talking in Klingon and fighting him with a batleth and, and wrestling him on the ground and so on. And then finally Worf kind of gets through his head uh, what's going on. But so it's interesting. So there's this kind of, there's this second romance and really, yes, Quark and Grilka is the kind of, is the Serrano story in a sense. But arguably you could say that the, the weird thing in this story is Worf is Serrano and the, and the reason it came about was because Michael Dorn actually, I think, had seen either the film or a production of the play and, and, and was very keen on the idea of, of a Serrano story. And he actually pitched it to the writers saying, I want to do Worf as Serrano. And they do have a certain amount in common. They're both 
I mean, Worf doesn't have Serrano's kind of flamboyance and his way with words because Serrano is extremely witty, but he does have this kind of heroism. You know, Serrano fights off a hundred other soldiers. And Serrano also has this line, uh, because, because he sees himself as ugly because of his nose and so on. He says, my only ornaments, my reputation. Now that's something that could absolutely come from Worf, this kind of obsession with reputation and heroism and doing the right thing. There's a scene in the play, for example, where their commanding officer in battle has thrown down his kind of his his sash, which is the kind of thing that marks him out as the as the officer because he doesn't want to be a target for the enemy. And Serrano says, if it had been me, I'd have picked it up and worn it myself. You know, I, I don't care if I draw the fire of the enemy. Uh, the sort of heroic, the brave, bold thing is to is to is to do that, not to be a coward. So that so there are kind of certain links between. Serrano and Wharf, you can see why Michael Dorn was thinking that. At the same time, with the story they ended up with, because of the role of Dax, uh, Wharf is also Roxanne, arguably, because what happens to Roxanne is she spends the whole storyline um, with Serrano as her friend. He's actually her cousin in the original version, thinking of him as a friend. Serrano is basically in the friend zone, just as Jadzia Dax is kind of in the friend zone. Um, and ultimately, Roxanne has to realise that the guy who she thought was a friend all along was actually the one who had this passionate love for her that she responded so much to and sort of see him as something else. And obviously with Dax and Worf, that's exactly what's happening in a sense is like Worf has to, to get Dax out of the friend zone to, to see that she's a romantic partner for him and actually a much better partner than Grilka. There's that great scene where she says, you know, you talk about her like she's a statue, you know, you want to admire her. You don't really want to love this woman. Whereas Dax is, you know, a kind of real partner for Worf somehow. Yeah, I think, for me, the issue is that Wolf isn't a very good Serrano character, partly because he doesn't actually really know who Grilka is, whereas I felt like Serrano really knew who Roxanne was. You know, like he, he's had experiences with Roxanne, he's talked to Roxanne, he's got a connection with Roxanne, they, they're acquainted, I think he understands who she is as a person. So in a way, I felt like Charlie in, Ro- in the film Roxanne, was more of a Serrano character. He understands who Roxanne is as well. He he likes her as a person. He understands her interests uh, and, you know, un- appreciates her intellect, whereas obviously Chris in the film doesn't appreciate Roxanne's um, intellect. He's only really, like, admiring her for her physical appearance. So I feel like Serrano and Chris, maybe they're actually really properly in love with somebody. You know, it's unrequited, but they really are in love with someone because they do understand who that person is. Whereas I don't think Worf ever actually really understands who Grilka is. He doesn't know who she is as a person. He doesn't actually really ever speak to her. He's only admiring her physical appearance. In a sense, he's a bit like Christian in that sense. And I, I suppose you could argue as well, you're right, he's a bit like um, Roxanne because Roxanne doesn't really ever know who Christian is. And she basically falls in love with the physical appearance of this person or or she's attracted to the physical appearance of this person and then she falls in love with Serrano's um, personality and character he's the one writing the letters to her and he's the one you know appealing to her to her mind I think that looking for Parmark in all the wrong places would have been much more successful to me if Quark and Worf's uh, positions had been had been changed if they'd been like swapped so I understand that Worf has to get with Jazia. I knew they were probably planning that and that's why they had to put that in the episode. And it's a nice way to introduce the relationship between Worf and Jazia, which will eventually go on to become something a lot more. Uh, and it was funny, I was watching this episode with my husband and he completely forgot most of this. 
And I think he forgot that Worf and Jazeera were together. So, like, when he was watching it with me, he was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What are they doing? Oh, my God. They're getting involved. And I was like, yeah, they get married eventually. And he was, he just, he was like, they get married? <laughs> but he's a Klingon. <laughs> and she's a Trill. I'm like, it's okay. It's love across boundaries. So that's fine. You know, that's, that's nice. But I thought the episode had been more successful if somebody like Quark, who is uh, perhaps maybe a little bit more on the fringes of like DS9 society, somebody who is perceived as kind of odd, a bit of an oddball. I mean, he's not by Ferengi standards, I suppose, but by everyone else. He's got a sort of striking appearance, shall we say. I wouldn't want to call Quark ugly, because beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but he's not got the same sort of charisma as Worf, you know, who goes in and acts and fights and um, seems like a man, you know. Quark's like... Seems a little weaselly at sometimes with, you know, his business dealings. So for him to teach Worf how to profess love to Grilka and Grilka finding out it was Quark and, and, and Grilka choosing Quark over Worf, I think would have been a much more standard treatment of the story. In a way, what they did was they took the story and they kind of, I, I, mean, I think Ronald D. Moore was clever in this. He took the story and he put a spin on it, which... It's kind of what Steve Martin did with Roxanne. I think that's definitely true. And I'd, I'd say if you're comparing these as adaptations, you know, Roxanne versus uh, Looking for Palmac and so on. I mean, Roxanne actually calls itself, you know, it's in the credits. It says uh, adapted from Serrano de Bergerac. It's, it's like a, an adaptation that is kind of uh, laying it on the sleeve. And yes, it changes the ending, but it hits a lot of the same beats, a lot of the same scenes, a lot of the same jokes and so on are in there almost, you know, not quite word for word, obviously, but, but translated. I mean, looking for Palmac is obviously a sort of looser adaptation. One of the things I think is quite interesting about it is I would say that actually Quark and Worf both share different elements of the Serrano personality. So Worf has the kind of heroism, the kind of, uh, braggadocio, the kind of, um, this sort of slightly larger than life heroic quality that Serrano has. Quark actually has the gift of the gab. And, you know, what we see is in that kind of wooing scene where, well, I say the wooing scene in, in this version, it's a fighting scene, basically, when they're doing the kind of battler fighting and, and Worf is controlling it. Worf gets uh, carried away with himself. He's kind of showing off and he breaks the machine. And then it's down to Quark to stall for time. Uh, using his gift of the gab, which actually Worf would not be able to do. Worf would be rubbish at stalling for time and keeping people talking for like, you know, three minutes or however long it takes Dax to fix that machine. Quark can do that. And he does it by sort of improvising this terrible poetry, uh, which is sort of laughably bad. But at the same time, it's, you know, Quark is actually a guy who's quite good with his back up against the wall in a tricky situation, trying to sort of talk his way out of it. What he lacks is Worf's kind of cultural understanding of how to woo a Klingon. So the fact that he's supposed to turn up with the dead body of some animal and supposed to, you know, threaten people and, and shout insults and so on. I mean, I mean, when you see Worf at the very beginning trying to woo Grilka, it's all extremely kind of aggressive and extremely kind of ritualised and so on. So so he kind of helps Quark out with that. And actually, we don't see that first scene where Quark goes off and, and follows Worf's advice. It's kind of takes place off stage, as it were. Um, and then he comes back and he says, oh, she said I had the soul of a I can't what the word is, some kind of a Klingon master, a sort of poet, a poetic soul, basically. So it's it's not so much his facility with language, which you're right, is something that really Quark has more than Worf does, but it's sort of Worf's cultural understanding of how to appeal to a Klingon, I suppose. It sort of stands in for that. But I think you're right, that the adaptation is much looser. Uh, it's less straightforward than the adaptation in Roxanne. And, and the key thing, I suppose, is that by adding this extra 
element to it by adding the element of Dax in there. What it changes is, is one of the kind of tensions of the Serrano story, both in the original and certainly in the Steve Martin version in the film Roxanne, is that the audience is slightly torn because on one level, they want the ruse to succeed because it's kind of dramatically exciting but but ultimately you want it to fail you want her to see through the ruse you want her to realize that it's serrano she loves you want christian to be kind of disappointed and of course in the original it ends kind of tragically in the ds9 version we actually want it to succeed once we've established wharf is not getting with grilka whether or not you know like your husband whether you see it coming that she's going to end up with that he's going to end up with dax or not uh we want quark to get with grilka and wharf is kind of totally out of the picture and the reason in that instance is not that he's got a long nose and is hideous physically it's that he has no honor because his family have been dishonored so he's sort of culturally hideous to grilka but i think that makes a big difference so in the ds9 episode we're as the viewer totally behind this mad scheme we want it to succeed there's no kind of real issue around it and i think that's kind of interesting because a lot in a lot of these stories there's a kind of slightly gray area about how do we really feel about it and i think it definitely comes out in the film roxanne because you know ultimately i mean this is uh, in in typical primitive culture fashion i'm going to take this story far more seriously than perhaps it should be taken but you know there are quite serious issues there there are kind of issues around consent especially since in the in the roxanne the film version the the key is whether she's going to sleep with him or not. And he very specifically says he wants her to say yes. He sort of asks for this consent. But at the same time, the consent is given based on a misunderstanding about who is speaking. You know, it's not kind of informed consent in that sense. So there is this kind of question around it. And there is this kind of sense that Roxanne is sort of made a fool of somehow by these two men. And understandably in the Steve Martin version, she's very angry when she finds out what's happened versus the original where it's it's played in a more sort of tragic light. I don't think in DS9 you really get a sense of that. There's no sense watching the DS9 episode of thinking, oh, Grilka is being made a fool of exactly, partly because what we see happening is really this display of kind of military prowess, this kind of battleth fight and so on. And yes, that's impressive to her, but really it sort of feels like she's pretty interested in Quark from the get-go. It's more just he has to jump through all these hoops to sort of make the courting acceptable. And therefore, I, th- I think it kind of, that adaptation slightly removes some of the awkwardness from the story and makes it more of a romp, more something that you can just kind of totally get on board with. Yeah, I think the difference is with Roxanne is that Chris is really pretending to be something that he's not. You know, he's really not what Roxanne thinks he is. You know, he's got no way with words. And they make that really very, very clear in the film. In fact, they make it very clear in a very, very funny way. He's got no way with words. He's not got any of the intellectual capacity that Charlie has. He's also doesn't appreciate Roxanne in the way that she wants to be appreciated. Like he doesn't really understand her intelligence. He's not really interested in that. I think he's just in awe of her, like, beauty and her body. And he's, you know, I mean, so, I think a few times he does say something like, oh, you're so clever or something. But he's not, he's, he, he doesn't really, he doesn't really understand her or love her like Charlie does. So that's because you kind of want him to fail. And you want Roxanne to find out that it's Charlie's, like, letters that he's been reading and it's Charlie's words that she's been hearing. But I think that um with Quark is a bit different. I mean, I think Quark is presenting a different person than who he is. It's just that he doesn't understand Klingon culture. And the fact that Quark is willing to learn Klingon culture and use Klingon culture and adapt to Klingon culture in order to pursue somebody 
is actually kind of sweet, really. It shows that he's willing to put himself into a different situation to be with that individual. Quark has always been attracted to strong women. And you see that again and again throughout the series with the different women that he's attracted to, including Janzia is one of them, which is quite interesting for a Ferengi because obviously it's a Ferengi society. Women are really subservient. They don't really have a place in society. I think they're not even allowed to wear clothes, I think. You know, so the fact that Quark comes from that kind of society and then is attracted to quite independent, strong women is says something kind of admirable about him. I mean, I think he really likes Grilka for who she is. He implies that he likes Grilka before when they were married and, um, you know, although they were obviously married for, uh, not for romantic reasons, but it sort of implies that he, you know, was interested in her then. Whether or not it implies there's going to be a relationship beyond this, like, short affair that we see in this episode you know, it's not, you, we don't know, obviously. But I think, like, it's more that Quark has to be schooled on how to act around, a, like, a very proud Klingon woman. It's not so much that he's presenting a completely different view of himself. And I think that that's where the real problem in the story lies for me, in, like, in the, in the original story, the Serrano de Bergerac story, and also in Roxanne, is how much can you say you're in love with someone if you don't actually know who they are? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's then you're in love with an idea of who that person is. And I think that's something that happens quite a lot, to be honest, because people feel like they're in love with someone when they don't actually know that person. But I mean, you could, I mean, I joked about online dating or whatever. Obviously, in the modern world, even more so, it's possible, you know, yeah, you mentioned catfishing or whatever, but even not to go to quite that extreme, you know, people changing their image, you know, photoshopping their their images, plagiarising their, you know, things that they're saying to someone using a line that they've, you know, picked up from someone else i mean you know there is this whole with the kind of the sort of dance of courtship and so on there is an element of all of that kind of thing and an element of kind of deception and so on almost baked into it and you could say i mean you know roxanne's situation where she sort of some on some fundamental level doesn't know the man that she thinks she's falling in love with you know you could say kind of metaphorically that is a that, that that's a kind of way of looking at love that that's a way of looking at falling in love with someone how much do you know about that person do you trust that everything they're saying is honest are they you know even if they do just have the gift of the gab can you trust all the words can you trust the sweet words coming out of their mouth sort of thing so on that level you could say that it is it's it's a way of looking at romance and the, the artifice of romance because really that's what it is is I mean, is is it true that the person who can produce the kind of soaring oratory necessarily has more fundamentally genuine feelings than the person who just is not that expressive? I mean, I think in the in the Steve Martin film, the guy Chris, he's also a bit of an airhead. He's he flips to this other girl quite quickly. He seems like a bit of an idiot. He's he's not really a a plausible romantic foil in a sense in the original play i think christian is a more likable character he's just not kind of loquacious he doesn't have the gift of the gap he doesn't have that kind of ability to woo a woman but that doesn't mean that his feelings yeah i mean everyone fancies her because he's really beautiful and that, that that's a big element of it but it's it, he's not such a kind of ridiculous character he's a, he's a more sympathetic character than the guy in the steve martin version and i think you're right quark is probably the most sympathetic in some ways in the role of christian who is typically this kind of bit stupid kind of pretty boy and obviously quark is not that quark is you know is, is a sort of more rich and interesting character and you're right i suppose what wharf is teaching him is it's it is more about the like how to sort of jump through these hoops of courtship it's kind of you know quark goes to finishing school basically for kind of klingon finishing school how to woo a klingon woman um and i think again that's one of the reasons i mean i don't know what you feel 
uh, personally, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I like the, play- I, I like all of these versions. I like the play a lot. I, I think the Steve Martin adaptation is pretty good and, and a decent film. And I really like this DS9 episode, though I know some people don't. I don't know what your, whether you feel sort of overall that it works either as an adaptation of this play or kind of just on its own terms. But for me, it kind of, I, I think, especially given that the way they've taken the source material and adapted it, for me, this episode works pretty well. I, I just like all of it. I find it very charming. I enjoy watching it. I think all the leads give good performances and there's real kind of character comedy there. It sort of plays to DS9 strengths, which is that it really knows its characters and it knows how to make the most of them, put them in a difficult situation, put them in a slightly awkward moment. And the comedy comes quite naturally from those characters. It feels quite believable, even though it's patently a ridiculous and, and, and sort of almost formulaic insofar as it's literally borrowed the plot mechanism is is borrowed from something quite well known but it it kind of fits despite how ridiculous it is for, for me it kind of fits and it i i sort of buy into it yeah i i actually enjoy this episode a lot i think and i enjoy the film roxanne a lot and i think that they're good not just because they very clever in the way that they adapt from the source material because roxanne the film is especially really clever in the way that it adapted the source material like there's sort of references to parts of the play that Steve Martin has sort of updated and modernised and actually made funny in today's context. Uh, but I also think that they're funny in their own right. You know, they're sort of humorous in their right. There is something very hilarious about Quark sort of adapting to Worf's movements, especially after the machine is broken and he's just sort of freestyling there with his conversation and his dialogue. And then suddenly he's being controlled again and his arms are all jerky and he's like, okay, now I'm going to take this bat laugh and now I'm going to... And there's something very funny about that. Armin Shimmerman's um, comic timing has always been really good and it's re- especially good in this episode. Apparently he actually hired a mime artist to work on those scenes with him because he, he knew that he wasn't sure how to play the, the idea of being physically controlled because he's almost having to play two things at once he's having to physically play Worf's movements and then with his like face and his acting in a sense play Quark's reaction to it and he actually hired a mime artist to come and teach him how to do that and how to sort of separate those two elements physically to make that comedy work and you, and you can really see it it really shows I think the effort that you put into that it proved to be a good decision because it does really work and I think also you have, can't forget that he's covered in prosthetics which has an impact on how you act as well. Also, that same could be said for Steve Martin. I mean, he was wearing a, this big prosthetic nose, which I think took about two hours every day to apply, or, or about 90 minutes. I'm not quite sure why the nose took so long to apply. But apparently he hated wearing it. He hated it. Although this was his film. He was the one who wrote this script. He wrote it about 25 times over several years. He just refining and refining and refining it. A lot of the jokes are very much his jokes. Um, and it works really well. It's hilarious. But I think one of the things that I love about this, this story and in the play as well is that it's about someone who's different and it, it's about loving someone for their differences and also loving somebody who's different than you. And I think the fact that it's not a mistake, I don't think that they made the DS9 episode, a Klingon woman and Worf, you know, obviously be the one who's sort of unrequited, lusting after her. But it's it's Quark that is the one who's going to go and get the girl. And I, I mean, initially, when I first started watching the episode, I thought, this is a bit, 
it's a bit prejudiced of Worf to like turn his nose up at the idea of Quark being with a Klingon woman. You know, like only Klingons can be together or something. But then by the end of the episode, we've got two sort of mixed species couples, haven't we? Because by the end of the episode, Quark's with Jazia. And then by the end of Roxanne, I mean, Charlie isn't a different species, he's human. But, you know, Roxanne loves Charlie's nose. She does say, she says, I love your nose. She says, I love your nose at the end of it. So she doesn't love him in spite of his differences. She loves him because of his differences, because he's different than everyone else in the town, because he's poetic and he's, you know, funny and because he's confident and, you know what I mean? So it's, it's about different people who are very different finding each other as well, even if it's in a really roundabout duplicitous way well there's an element of the kind of beauty and the beast in the storyline isn't there and in the play actually serrano makes a reference to that he's because he says in this kind of tragic mode you know this is not a beauty and the beast story this is not there's not some magical enchantment where you kiss me and i turn into a handsome guy basically i'm always going to be ugly and that in the play very much emphasizes this idea of his ugliness and the key moment is when roxanne says that because he's been writing because they're separated by war. And so he's been, so she's actually spent very little time with Christian. Um, I mean, so little time that she hasn't realized that he has nothing to say to her. She knows that she finds him attractive. She thinks he's a handsome guy, but you know, she's heard Serrano speaking and, and believed that it was Christian. And then she gets these letters, which of course Serrano is writing, uh, without Christian even being aware of it, which is something that comes across in the Steve Martin film as well. And so she, the key moment really is she says this line, she says, I've come to love him. I've come to love his soul. I would love him even if if he were ugly and Cyrano can't believe it. He's like, she would love me even if I, you know, I am ugly and she loves, she could love me. She meets me that she loves essentially. And it throws both him and Christian into this real crisis. And when Christian hears it, he's horrified because basically he knows that all he's got going for him are his good looks basically. And if really she's not that interested in his looks anymore because she loves something else, he has to recognise that it's not him that she loves. I mean, this is all stuff on a level that really the DS9 doesn't... There's no real worry for Quark. Oh, does Grilka really love me because she thinks I'm someone else and I'm not really that person? We don't really get any of that angst somehow in the DS9 version. But that's why I suppose the original play goes from being this quite knockabout comedy. And it's a weird play because there's a lot of comedy. There's a lot of kind of funny set pieces. I mean, the, the set piece in the Steve Martin film where he enumerates 20 different insults that the guy could have said about his nose, basically to, to show what a fool this guy is who says, hey, you've got a big nose or whatever. And so he, he does this kind of almost like a sort of stand-up routine to this bar saying, you know, come on, you can do better than that. I'll give you 20 better insults off the top of my head. And again, in the original play, you've got a scene very much like that where he, he names, I think, seven different things that he could have said about the nose. And it's all very kind of grandiloquent and, and sort of... um you know, it's funny. It's a proper kind of routine for that actor. You can see why it was written as this kind of star vehicle. But then gradually the play sort of shifts into this much more tragic mood. First of all, where where this point comes where Roxanne says she could love him when he's ugly. And for both Serrano, who feels he's missed his chance, you know, maybe she could have loved him after all. And he didn't just have to be this kind of proxy figure. And for Christian, who feels maybe his wife doesn't actually know him or love him at all... Uh, and then, of course, because he dies, it becomes this kind of unspoken thing. And then ultimately Serrano dies. And, and, you know, as I say, no one, no one really gets that kind of happy ever after. I suppose all of that in some sense comes out of this kind of angst about what does it really mean to have lied about this? What does it mean to fall in love with someone and they're not the person that you think they are or that they're not, you, you know, that the person you've fallen in love with is actually a fiction almost or to realize that your feelings were not quite what you thought somehow. And I think in the, you know, in the DS9 version, 
we sort of sidestep that because we don't really care, frankly, that, you know, whether, whether Grilka <laughs> thinks Quark is something that he isn't. I think because it's fairly clear she, she's very fond of him from the get go. You know, she clearly likes him. Yeah. Um, he clearly likes her and we sort they have of shared history. Yeah. And they've got shared history and they, they, they're, they're quite a fun as a kind of beauty and the beast couple. They're quite a sort of an, an appealing couple. They, they both have a lot of character and a lot of kind of good qualities somehow. Um, so it doesn't sort of go in that tragic direction but i guess there is always this sort of question around these stories about unrequited love in particular or kind of love triangles or love quadrangles or whatever there is always this sort of angst potentially and one of the things that i love about this story actually is the way that dax's storyline is played i mean i think you know i said armin shimmerman is great i think michael dawn is great in this story it plays to some of his strengths in terms of making Worf seem kind of over the top and ridiculous. I think Jadzia is fantastic. And the way, not just the way that Terry Farrell plays her, though I think she does play her very well, but the way that Dax is written in this episode is actually really refreshing and really unusual because she is also the, you know, she is the unrequited lover. She's the one who goes into it. She's clearly interested in Worf. She's not getting any response from him. But what we don't get is the kind of typical sort of trope of the unrequited lover who's this sort of mopey, miserable, slightly wretched character, which in a sense is what Serrano is in relation to Roxanne. He has many good qualities, you know, when he deals with other people and he he has lots of positive qualities in himself. But when it comes to Roxanne, he's there's a slightly pathetic side. Jadzia is never really pathetic. She's there. She makes her interest clear. When Worf doesn't get it, she makes it even more clear. She kind of asserts herself. She has confidence in herself. She doesn't allow the fact that he doesn't seem to be interested in her, at least initially, to kind of affect her self-esteem or anything in the way that people typically do in those situations. She's she's confident. She knows who she is. She knows she has a lot to offer. She knows she's a good prospect for him. And she sort of puts it on a plate to him and says, you know, look, this is what's in front of you kind of thing. And I think that is actually a very unusual and quite refreshing way of writing one of those unrequited love stories in a sense. And certainly very different to how Star Trek typically does those stories. If you think of, um, you know, well, Bashir and, and Jadzia, for example, Bashir is a little bit pathetic the way he deals with, with, with Jadzia. I mean, if you think <laughs> of, um, and, and never more so than in that scene after Jadzia has died when Esri tells Bashir, and that is heartbreaking when Esri tells Bashir, oh, you know, if Worf hadn't come along, it would have been you. There's that real kind of like, <gasps> you, you know, it's a real kind of gut punch. Um, Odo, who's so obsessed with Kira for so many years that, you know, we talked about this before. By the time you get to something like Children of Time, there's a real kind of toxic quality to that, that unrequited love. There's something quite dangerous and sinister about it. And so, so it's this kind of interesting question. With Dax, they managed to have a situation where, and it's unusual really that the woman is the one who's interested in the man, but it doesn't in any way diminish her character. It doesn't kind of weaken her in any way to say, look, I fancy you. How about it? You know, and, and, and she can do that. She can flirt with him. She can even explain quite explicitly what she's interested in. And it doesn't kind of, it doesn't seem to make her vulnerable really in the way that you might expect. It kind of, she has enough confidence in herself to do that and to, to assert herself as a potential partner. Well, she's very honest, isn't she? And she's not resorting to games. Do you know what I mean? And I think like in all of these stories that we're talking about, there's not, they're not a, trying to, achieve their goal, their love goal, through honesty. Do you know what I mean? I mean, so Jadzia is very honest. She just says kind of to, to Worf in Klingon, whatever, comes on to him in Klingon and sort of says what she wants. I think she does kind of hint at it before when she talks about Grilka being this woman on a pedestal, not right for Worf. Perhaps Worf could 
look a little closer to home to find someone who's more suited to him someone who's more fun to be with and obviously she's talking about herself but she doesn't yeah you're right she doesn't spend a huge amount of time moping around or seeming sad you know you sort of get the feeling that she likes really likes Worf but if Worf chooses to be an idiot she's gonna let him be an idiot and let that sort of situation play out and uh, she probably would find somebody else do you know what I mean so she's kind of confident but then I think you mentioned this before when we were talking about this episode she's somebody's got multiple lives so she's got multiple experiences of being both male and female and i would imagine on the receiving end and the giving end of a number of romantic relationships so she probably has experienced unrequited love in a previous lifetime as dax so maybe that makes her a bit more wise i think the thing about roxanne and sarano de bergerac is in sarano de bergerac correct me if i'm wrong but i thought that sarano had the chance to declare his love to roxanne before Christian even really came along and that he chose not to because he didn't think that Roxanne could ever love him because he was so ugly. Whereas in Roxanne, I feel like Charlie doesn't even really start thinking that he is kind of, he's attracted to Roxanne. That's obvious right at the beginning, but he doesn't start really thinking about how much he cares for her until she's already seen Chris, you know? And if he just left that situation alone and he hadn't helped Chris to seduce Roxanne then Chris probably would have fallen foul at some point. He would have said something really stupid or he wouldn't have been able to talk to Roxanne at all. But, you know, there's a scene in the film where Charlie takes Roxanne up, I assume, a mountain or a hill where they are. Uh, British Columbia, I think. Is it British Columbia? Well, I think I it's know. filmed in Canada, but it's. I took it that we were meant to assume it was taking place in America, but it had actually been filmed in, in Canada, it, yeah. Because they mention Aspen at one point, don't mm. they? So it's Which like is, they're what, supposed Colorado, to be not that far from... Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. So not to be, they're supposed to not be too far from Aspen, but so he he takes her up to the this top of the hill or whatever to look at the view, and they're talking, and he sort of thinks that she's saying that she likes him, but then she says, "Oh no, I like Chris." And at that point, you know, he could have just it's fine, you know, you like someone else, I'll just leave it. But he, it's like he gets drawn into this situation of helping Chris, and I never really understood why Charlie did that, to be honest. You know, it's almost like Chris starts talking about how he's going to woo Roxanne and Charlie's like, no, 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 she's an intelligent woman, she's into poetry, you have to woo her properly. Um, so I sort of felt a little bit like Sarana de Bergerac deliberately does not pursue Roxanne because he thinks she can never love him. Charlie deliberately does not pursue Roxanne because he's just, I guess, just decides to help Chris. I feel like both these men made their own beds. <laughs> Now they have to lie. They made them. their own beds for someone I else think to lie. I'm sympathetic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sim- well, yeah, they made they made these they made they beds. Made beds. I yeah. someone else gets to lie they, made, them. they made the beds. They didn't want. But I mean, I'm sympathetic. I, th- I think that but- I mean, uh, uh, and Wolf, of course, it slightly gets an out because he does express his interest. I mean, actually, like Dax at the end, he he comes on pretty strong to Grilker at the beginning and is basically told, "Look, forget it. It's not going to happen." So we kind of get that out of the way in like the first five or ten minutes of the episode. I mean, I think in terms of the psychology of it. Yes, you're right. As a formula, it's quite entertaining to watch. It's quite fascinating. You could argue like psychologically, this storyline, however it's adapted, makes no sense because why would the guy do that? I think we're meant to think that he does it because he does like, I mean, Worf doesn't particularly like Quark, but in, you know, in Serrano likes Christian. He thinks he's a nice guy. I think in Roxanne, Charlie you know, basically it seems to get on pretty well with, um, with Chris and he thinks he's a nice guy. I think, and I think it's the yeah, idea. He's doing it for Roxanne though. Mm. And it's, yes, think, you're right. I think he's in Roxanne, Roxanne, he's doing arguably. it for her rather than, because doesn't she say something like, Oh, please get him to talk to me. Yes. She's asking him to be the, yeah. 
to be the kind of mediator because because you know he's the friend and 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 she's asking for his help and i think there's also though the sense which does come across of and it's a weird it's a slightly twisted thing but is it almost if he can't get her himself can he have the satisfaction of knowing that someone else got her because of him that on some level you know there is this sense that he makes her fall in love with him even if he doesn't get her that it's him that she loves and that that's a kind of consolation. And there's a line, I think, in the play and I think also in the Steve Martin film where there's this sort of weird, um, sort of bittersweet quality in a sense where, so in the original play, Serrano has managed to get them to the point where they're going to get married and he's kind of kicking himself, but at the same time consoling himself with the idea, well, if it weren't for me, this would never have happened. You, you know, I am on some level, I am lovable, even if physically I'm not lovable on some level I'm lovable. And, and he says something like, you know, when she kisses his lips, it will be because of the, you know, my, my words that she thought were coming out of them or something. Do you, do you know what I mean? There's this kind of idea that it's a kind of proxy thing and it's never quite the same, but there is something there. And you see that in the DS9 as well, because at the end, when Worf is controlling Quark, and he's kind of got to the point where it's successful. Uh, Quark then has to embrace Grilka and Worf is still controlling it. And he's literally getting, I mean, there's some kind of weird thing. You, you know, if Dax hadn't taken that machine off Worf, if Dax hadn't been there, who knows at what point Worf would have decided to unplug himself from that machine. And so there's this weird kind of, you, you know, if Quark goes in for the kiss, who is no. it? Who's, who's it? You know, what, what's the feedback going on from Worf's perspective? What's he kind of getting back? And, 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 you know, also who's in control? Cause Quark can't control his own body at that point. So there is this sort of weird thing of like being the proxy. If you know you're the one kind of pulling the strings or being the puppeteer or whatever, if, that, if that's the metaphor, if you're the one pulling the strings, you you derive some satisfaction you derive some kind of feeling of being loved but you're also getting this kind of sense that well the love is directed to this other person that's not me so there's this kind of weird almost sort of split identity or split personality or something which i suppose is one reason why you know when the story gets adapted it does become possible to take elements of the different characters and kind of switch them around a bit because they're because already basically this is a play this is a story that is about a composite character i mean there's the line the the, the line in the original play is together we can make a perfect man and that's the idea basically serrano has the brains uh christian has the looks and that basically you know what she wants is the full package and neither of them can provide it on their own so you know together they can make this kind of entity which is a combination of both people somehow, almost a kind of sci-fi idea. You could say, you know, that's the sort of thing you could get, uh, in Star Trek. I mean, the trill, arguably that's, you know, on one level, that's what you've got, isn't it? It's a kind of joined entity. But really, of course, what she discovers is as time goes on, the looks are not that important to her, that it's, it's the stuff that Serrano's got that is more important. That's the really kind of important thing. And as I say, in a sense, you know, for Worf, I suppose it's partly about recognizing he liked Grilka because she was so Klingon. She seemed like a magnificent Klingon woman. He's not noticing Dax because Dax isn't a Klingon. That's not what he's interested in. But actually, I mean, as much as Dax sort of gets him by speaking in Klingon and playing up to her kind of Klingon cred, in a sense, um, he sort of has to see her as a potential partner in a way that he hadn't, he just hadn't noticed her in that way, even though, you know, to anyone else who's watching, it must be blindingly obvious. So I suppose there's that kind of quality of, you know, looking beyond your preconceptions, looking beyond your kind of assumptions, looking beyond 
the surface level and seeing something a little bit deeper. And so with Dax, I mean, it's kind of complicated by the fact that, you know, Terry Farrell is absolutely gorgeous and you're kind of like, you know, what's wrong with you? But at the same time, what he's meant to be seeing in her is not just here's this very attractive young woman who's interested in him. It's also here's this, as she says, fun, interesting, complicated, real person who wants to get to know him. Do you know what I mean? Because Dax is a very rich and real and kind of, um, you know, lovable person as a, as I was going to say, as a human being. I mean, she's not a human being, but as, as a, as a, as a being. And really he has to kind of notice her. So it's about loving someone for their personality rather than just how they look. I mean, in a way, that's kind of the sort of one of the major themes running through all these stories is, I would say, not judging people based on their looks. I, I think, and especially in the film Roxanne, well, it's kind of actually how Worf sort of becomes enamoured with Grilka. It's basically by her appearance and the way that she walks and her bearing and everything, which is all physical. It's all what you see. It's not actually, and it's, he hasn't actually really spoken to her. And in the film Roxanne, Roxanne is attracted to Chris purely based on how he looks like that. They stare at each other repeatedly in different scenes until they actually end up speaking, you know, well, they don't end up speaking. She gets a letter, which is obviously written by Charlie. So uh, there's a lot of stories like that though, isn't there about appreciating someone for their personality, not just their physical appearance, because physical appearance is not really love. You know, it's like lust and it only lasts for so long. There has to be something else that sustains you in a relationship. And that has to, that's personality, that's character. And that's, you know, how you relate to each other and how you interact. What's interesting about all of these adaptations is that they almost always end happily. I mean, I'm sure there are film versions of Sarano de Bergerac that end sadly. Well, we know the one with Gerard Depardieu. Depardieu. Let me get his name right. <laughs> Depardieu. We know that he that one ends sadly, and we know yeah. that he ends up dying. And the film ends tragically, as we've mentioned. And no one really has uh, the play partner yeah, by the yeah, end, yeah. partner by the end. Of it. Sorry, the play. Sorry, no one really has a partner by the end of it. Uh, there's a fair amount of death. Uh, yeah, so poor it's old interesting. Roxanne ends that... up in a nunnery as well, basically, for 15 years, you know, yeah, pining which is away. It's really, de- really depressing. <laughs> no one to write her love letters there, you mm-hmm. know. So it's interesting that adaptations of this story have emphasized the humor more and less of the tragedy. And I wondered if that was because modern audiences don't like sad unrequited love stories that don't end happily and you know it's entirely possible that odo's unrequited love could never have been acknowledged but it was it does feel like there isn't any sort of even in star trek i mean what unrequited love exists that isn't acknowledged at some point well i would say i mean just briefly to answer that i suppose the doctor and seven of nine is the example where i think rightly they make the decision that they're not going to get them together because why would she be interested in him and i think that's quite nice that they play it that way i think arguably arguably um yeah (laughs) arguably odo and kira should not have got together i mean i think there's a case for saying that that odo's obsession with kira is is dramatically interesting and quite as i say like that whole sequence in children of time where that takes you is is, is very dark and very serious but but that arguably it was a mistake from a kind of narrative point of view to to kind of bring them together in the end and, but i think there is this you know obviously there's this tendency to want the happy ending. And I suppose, especially with romance, you know, we think of romantic comedy as a genre. Obviously, there is such a thing as romantic tragedy, but it's tough. I mean, I don't know if you saw the film La La Land. I loved that film. I thought it was great. 
But the way it, this is a spoiler, obviously, for I won't say what happens, but anyway, it doesn't end well for, for the couple in La La Land. It ends I felt, well, ends well. Well, maybe. It just doesn't end. It doesn't end, end the way that you want it. It doesn't end the way you would expect. It doesn't expect. end the way you want. And that's what's hard about it. And it's heartbreaking. And yes, it's very well made. And it's a beautiful film and everything. But I left the cinema feeling really down after that film having enjoyed it for two hours or whatever i was like you know why the hell have they ended up like that because i was kind of assuming it was going to be uh you know as well as everything else kind of a romantic comedy and they get together and everyone would live happily ever after and they didn't as far as uh, certainly as i interpreted the ending of that film and maybe that's real and it did feel quite real and in reality people don't always and mostly unrequited love doesn't magically get fixed you know but but there is this kind of i suppose in tv and in film and so on it does so if you think you know say ross and rachel in friends ultimately now i can't remember do they ultimately end up they certainly end up together at some point even if they don't i think they're they're back together again by the end but you know it's got to you kind of got to have that and they weren't together exactly we kind of expect (laughs) that sort of happy ending but the thing it reminded me of as well thinking about this episode and thinking about this kind of subject of unrequited love in star trek was a quote not from Star Trek, but actually from Babylon 5, which is there's a line in Babylon 5 where Ivanova says, all love is unrequited, all of it. And I was just curious what your thoughts are on that, either in, you know, in real life, what does, what on earth does that mean when she says that? And I would say possibly it's something to do with the kind of things we're talking about, about how much do you ever know someone? How much do you ever know what you're getting back? Where, where is that kind of gap, almost that kind of leap of faith? Um, but also in terms of narrative and in terms of TV, is there a reason why on TV and in film and so on, we find unrequited love so fascinating, why we see so much of it, why it's such a kind of strong narrative device? I suppose because it's got that kind of tension baked into it. But I was just curious, what you know, what do you think this this idea, all love is unrequited? What does that mean to you? Well, it's interesting you should bring up Babylon 5 because there's two, there's two characters that have unrequited love. One is an alien called Lanier, who has unrequited love for Delenn, who's essentially, I think she starts out as his employer, but then eventually she sort of becomes, she's an ambassador and he's a diplomatic aide, you know? And that actually is requited in the sense that it's not returned, but he does confess that he, well, she finds out that he loves her. And I always thought that was a bad, a bad twist in the storyline. It was a mistake for her to find that out. I thought it was better that, it was more dramatic a storyline if he just loved her um, and, and no one knew or, or she didn't know. And in, and the other case you're talking about is Ivanova. So Susan Ivanova's this female commander. There's a sort of, I don't know what you call it, like a warrior, space warrior, a ranger called Marcus, uh, Cole, I think his last name is Marcus. And he falls in love with Susan and basically has this unrequited love for her. And I think she cut, they flirt and everything, but I don't think she realizes how deep his affections go. Until he sacrifices his life for hers. And that's what she's, that's when she's saying that line, when she's grief stricken in the sick bay, crying over his dead body. She says, all love is unrequited, all of it. Uh, and that bothered me more. I felt like their love could have been requited. I thought they would have made a cute couple, but I don't actually think all love is unrequited. I think all TV love or most of TV love or film love is unrequited, but because it's an easy source of drama, just like you never see a happy married couple on television. Or a couple where there's unrequited love or unresolved sexual tension will get together and everyone will be happy. All the shippers, all the fans will be happy and then they'll break up because there's no tension in a relationship where two people are together. 
Do you know what I mean? It's like Mulder and Scully have this relationship where it's kind of like unrequited love, although it wasn't really unrequited because they cared about each other, but it's this relationship where they're not really together, then they end up together, and then Chris Carter splits them up because there's no tension in a relationship where two people are happy together. But I would argue that's not true because, like, for instance, in the TV show Firefly, which is another science fiction show, there was a married couple and there was a fair amount of tension in that. And it was, you know, interesting. It was interesting marriage. Uh, and unfortunately, obviously, Joss Whedon killed off the husband. Um, so, of course, in any happy relationship, somebody has to die or they have to argue. Like the O'Briens, like Keiko and Miles O'Brien can't be happily married. Well, even in but this episode, not- you know, we see the B-plot of this episode. Even is this kind episode. of trouble in the O'Brien household, in a sense, isn't it? And that's another weird situation. We should go on to talk about the other subplot, <laughs> the B plot of this, of this, of this episode. But I would argue that that's not true to life. I would argue that in reality, that not all love is unrequited. I would argue that unrequited love can't really be true love because unless the love's coming back at you and you're giving the love freely and there's an exchange, I don't think it's, it's a different type of love. I wouldn't say it's a deep, true love. And I would argue that actually a lot of love is requited and that human beings aren't quite as complicated as you'd see on television, that people love each other, they get together, they stay together, they break up. I thought Lala Lad was kind of true in that point, you know, like people were happy for a time, they were what they needed then, and then they moved on with their lives. You know, it's this idea that there's this one true person out there for you. Perhaps there is, but perhaps there's seven true people out there for you and you just might, you know go through them in your lives i do i do think that the subplot of this episode was a bit crazy though (laughs) (laughs) well the subplot i don't think that's unrequited i think that's just wrong (laughs) the the subplot of the episode i've I've always found quite weird and watching it again this week i sort of thought actually nana visitor and cole mooney do a pretty good job of it they sell it as best they can but it's a weird yeah there's something quite weird about it. It seems to come out of nowhere. It seems quite random. I mean, interestingly, I was looking in the DS9 companion and I think, I think it was Ron Moore. It, one of the writers anyway was saying they thought that it was actually very believable and it was one of the most human and genuine things that they'd written in the sense that I suppose it's true. The storyline of the couple who could have an affair, but decide not to. And it's difficult. That, that is. There's a kind of realism to that, I suppose. It's not where you'd expect the kind of TV drama to take it. You'd expect scandal and, you know, there'd be a kiss and then there'd be kind of recriminations and everything. So in that sense, I suppose it's true. It's kind of on a quite small scale. But I just always felt it was such a weird, just because of this weird surrogacy situation that somehow he's falling in love with her. And why on earth is she falling in love with him? That's the bit I really don't get. I could, you know, maybe you can make a a kind of weird justification of something going on in O'Brien's head. What's going on in Kira's head? I just don't get it. Uh, it was, it's, it's mystifying. <laughs> it's mystifying to me. But I think it's just going back to this idea of whether all love is unrequited and so on. I mean, I think there's, I suppose there's the idea. It's, there's always that possibility. There's the possibility, you know, we talked about before with, with Janeway has that line in Fairhaven, you know, what if he, how can I be sure if he loves me back? And the doctor says, well, isn't that the risk you always take? I suppose there's that question that you can never fully know another person on some level. That there's always a kind of trust or a kind of faith involved. But I would argue that is love. Yeah. I would argue that's part of that's love. That's baked into it. I would argue but that's that what Ivanova, having I think, trust is and saying, faith in someone else is love. 
but then arguably but then poss- but that's one way of interpreting that that line from babylon 5 i suppose is saying that that is that that, that small gap or that kind of leap of faith or whatever is it, that it's not automatically required that there's a kind of you have to believe that it's coming back as well even if whether or not it is because ultimately you can never fully know another person but i think you're right in real life you know real life is not necessarily as tense and dramatic as tv you know you get more situations where people meet someone they quite like each other they date for a bit they kind of get together you know there's a more kind of conventional way of of getting together but obviously this varies i mean and i think one can find oneself in these kind of uh slightly crazy situations i mean i remember when i was at university i directed a play and typically it's actually a lot of theater you know typically while you're rehearsing a play or whatever you know people will start to get interested in each other emotions will start getting brought up by the play that you're working on by the things that the characters are doing and so on people in my experience were usually quite restrained though about actually getting involved with someone else until the end of the play because they didn't want to kind of complicate things or whatever so it was always the kind of party at the end of the last performance where all this stuff would come out and there was one show i was directing where i remember there was a girl i was interested in uh, and, and basically so at the party people would sort of declare their their romantic feelings so i declare my romantic feelings she wasn't interested in me then someone else came along and declared her romantic oh. feelings for me and i wasn't interested in her then someone else came along to her and declared his romantic feelings in her and she wasn't interested in him then there was a guy who was interested in the guy who was interested in her and he wasn't interested in him either and it was literally so there was this chain of like five uh <laughs> five sets of unrequited love five crushes none of which was going to lead to anything and then you know <laughs> We, we stayed up drinking late into the night. Everyone went home and, you know, pretty much never saw each other again. And, and you know, I mean, as, you know, nothing came out of it in that sense. Whereas obviously, you know, a lot of plays I've been involved in, some couples might come out of it because ultimately you might find that the people had managed to get interested in the right people, you know, but it's interesting. You sort of see that even in the DS9 episode where Worf is really, he, he, they, they are as the title of the episode says, looking for love, you know, looking for Palmach in all the wrong places. They're, Obviously, in the O'Brien household, there, there's this potential for an affair. You know, they're looking in the wrong place. They sh- he should be focused on his wife. In Worf's situation, he's, you know, he's got two women that he's kind of interacting with and he's stupidly obsessed with the wrong one. And, you know, he has to kind of be brought around to see that the other one is actually the is is the right one for him. But, you know, so all I'd say is these things can happen. It might seem like a kind of dramatic trope. It might seem like, you know, Ross and Rachel for 10 years or whatever, and it's ridiculous. And now he loves her. Now she loves him. And, you know, it's always zigzagging back and forth. But it can happen. You know, it's not impossible. I think that although I complained about the subplot, I have to say it does have some of the best dialogue I've ever heard in Star Trek. I mean, does, Star Trek has some great dialogue. Okay. So it's a, it's a difficult thing to say because there's so much good script writing in Star Trek, but that Ronald D. Moore's description of that house in Bajor that they're going to, <laughs> how romantic it mm. is. She's like, you can see the lake from every window in the house. The way that, well, the way that, um, Nana Visitor delivers those lines, but she describes that house. Mm. It's just, it just cracked me up. It cracks me up every single time I watch it. I just think it's really funny. She's brilliant. It's actually. just the house yeah. gets more and more and more over the top. And she like, doesn't it? want like, to be saying it. And, and she's, wildflowers. yeah, yeah. She's, yeah. She kind of can't bring herself <laughs> like to answer these fireplaces. Yeah. But that's what, one of the things. Five bedrooms. But that's why I say, and I, and I, <laughs> and, I and, and yeah, and miles away from anything. And I think, you know, they play those scenes, they play them, they get the comedy out of them. I mean, I think Andrew Robinson directing this was his first directing job on Star Trek. And apparently he'd just won 
an award, I think, for uh, theatre directing. And he made sure that Rick Berman saw the paper where, you know, his name was was listed as having won this award for directing Beckett, I think, or something. And and it was a big deal that they were letting someone who wasn't a regular cast member kind of join this, you know, Star Trek director's scheme, basically be allowed to direct an episode. And I think he was really pleased, partly coming from a theatrical background, to be doing an adaptation of a play that he was quite familiar with. But also you can tell it's a lot of the charm of that episode is about getting the best out of the actors, getting the best performances out of them. And it's a combination of great performances, a lot of effort. I mean, like I say, you know, Armin Shimmerman going and studying with this mime artist and also spending 10 days practicing his batleth moves at home because he knew that, you know, it had to look like Quark was doing the moves. So he had to be, you know, actually Armin Shimmerman had to be really good with a batleth you know, a lot of effort going into it. And also, of course, the script. And I think, you know, I've said this many times, I think DS9 really nails character comedy. Everyone is great in this episode. I mean, Julian, at the end, this kind of cringing embarrassment when he realises that everyone's been having sex and they've, they've, you know, been (laughs) having violent Klingon sex and Worf and Dax come in and we know he's in love with Dax. And this kind of like, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, you know, barely able to cope with the situation. Played brilliantly. Everyone playing their character perfectly you know e- even down to cisco there's i mean cisco's barely in that episode he's in it for about sort of 20 seconds but there's just this wonderful moment where he's kind of he realizes that Worf's in love and he's he's you know slightly kind of sort of bamboozled by this and, and amused and, and and kind of entertained by it you know really just all the kind of character beats all the kind of comic potential is drawn out you know absolutely by a combination of the writing the performances and i think you have to say the direction as well it's a very nicely put together episode it's one of the episodes i'm not going to say it's one of the best episodes of ds9 but it it has many of the qualities that for me are some of the best elements of ds9 in terms of that cast in terms of that writing in terms of how it all kind of fits together and that sort of feeling of that kind of community and it also has this kind of interesting inspiration you know this take on this kind of source material this it does manage to kind of marry this this quite unlikely story from a very different world. I mean, Serrano, although it was a play written in the 19th century, it's set in the 17th century. You know, it's set in this time of kind of swashbuckling heroes and so on. And again, in that sense, it makes sense, I suppose, that it's a Klingon story. I mean, you were saying, why is Ronald D. Moore writing this? He's, we think of him as a serious writer. We also think of him as like the Klingon guy. He's the guy who does all the big Klingon stories. And it is a big Klingon story. And of course, the way that Quark has to woo Grilka is by going back in time a thousand years to the founding of the empire and playing Kalos and this, you know, this kind of mythical story, which again is from this kind of, I mean, Klingons are always pretty kind of swashbuckling and, and, whipping their swords out and everything. But again, is this sort of going back in time, just as Serrano was, you know, 19th century French entertainment going back to 17th century swashbuckling. You know, here we've got the kind of this mythology of this kind of heroic age for the Klingons as well. All very overblown, all very kind of ridiculous, all very silly on one level. I mean, in in one sense, you know, even at the very end where Dax starts sort of spitting out lines of Klingon at Wharf, there's something slightly almost ridiculous about it but at the same time it's played really straight down the line it's played with such conviction you know both from terry farrell and also from dax somehow that you buy into it you know there's a kind of there's an authenticity to it there's a kind of genuine quality to it that comes through despite how schematic and formulaic and sort of over the top ridiculous the basic premise is so we know that dax and wolf stay together after this and 
obviously, until she dies. Spoiler alert, if anyone hasn't watched Deep Space Nine. And, and why haven't you, if you haven't? Um, but we know that she's, she stays with him and that we know that they get married. But we don't know what happens to Grilka and Quark. And, I mean, I want to know, what do you think? Do you think that they have a long love affair? Do you think they are... Like, do they think, do you think they send like love letters to each other across subspace? Or do you think it's like a one, one sort of night affair type thing? And then they decide to part ways. Well, towards the beginning of the episode, Dax basically says to him something like, you know, is this just a one night stand or something? He says, well, maybe not, you know, maybe two or three or something, doesn't he? He kind of implies it's not, he's, I mean, I suppose it's while she's in town, you know, she's around for a while and then she's going to go back to Kronos and, you know, who knows? So I don't, I don't think we get the sense that this is going to, they're not going to get married and live happily ever after, are they? This is a kind of more like a sort of holiday romance or more like a kind of, you know, she's there while she's there. I mean, actually in the Steve Martin film Roxanne it's the same thing she's only there for the summer and there's this whole thing of like you know is anyone going to get their act together to kind of ask her out and to kind of woo her before she has to leave and I suppose by the end you know when she's oh, falling no. in love with Steve I thought she stayed well maybe she does I I, I mean I would sort I of assume she, stays that she probably stays uh, <laughs> don't ruin it for but- me <laughs> but it has no, but they do set it up quite clearly that she's there for the summer. You know, she's taken that house for a few months and then she's going to be off back to the university or whatever after that. So who knows? I guess, you know, they, they could have, have a long distance, long distance relationship. Could, well, she'd get some great letters, <laughs> wouldn't she? You know, but, um, and the same with, uh, with Quark and Grilka. I, I kind of imagine a few days later she has to go back to Kronos. They kind of right now and then and when she's in town they hook up again that would be my guess i don't, I don't think there's going to be wedding bells on ds9 for those two but you know Worf and dax obviously is another matter and i suppose there's also this sense that although the the kind of the story is ostensibly about quark and grilka and that's where kind of the main focus is and Worf and dax is almost the kind of sub story or the kind of subtext almost that comes out right at the end of course, going forward for DS9, Wolf and Dax is the key story. And I mean, that's the romance that starts in this episode that really means something is the relationship between the two of them. And I think it's quite nice in some ways that, that their relationship comes out of this slightly random situation where he was actually interested in someone, someone else. That, that again feels almost quite real because not every, I mean, I know I said, you know, a lot of relationships in real life, they start with, you know, people meet and they swap numbers and they start dating and so on. It's all all quite kind of one thing at a time. But equally, a lot of people in real life, you know, their relationships do start slightly more messily than that. And I quite like the fact that Wolf and Dax's relationship starts in this quite messy situation where, you know, actually he's kind of half in love with someone else. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting way in. It's a bit, it's a bit less predictable than say, Although they've maybe been flirting ever since he's kind of arrived on the station or she's, she's been sort of somewhat interested in him for quite a while. Uh, they could have paired them up straight away. They could have kind of teased that relationship more going forward. Whereas I feel like they kind of let it just sort of bubble along a bit without really anything happening. And then here they kind of find a way to motivate a change in that and to kind of actually get them together finally. And in some ways it's more satisfying, I would say, than you know, say Tom and Bellana, which I also, you know, is a relationship I also like. I think that works quite well. I don't really have a problem with it. But um I quite like the fact that in this storyline, they get Wolf and Dax together in this slightly random, slightly kind of almost accidental way somehow. Well, I think the Wolf and Dax relationship, the way it starts, is actually a bit of a rom-com trope, actually. She's sort of in the place of like the female friend, 
of the main male protagonist who's going after some sort of attain- unattainable woman without realizing that actually his soulmate or the woman that he's supposed to be with is right next to him. Uh, and actually, you've, I think you find that again and again in rom-coms. Uh, and I think that's actually a story that appeals to, I think I would imagine a wide audience because I think at some point, everybody in whatever relationship you've had feels like they are like the sort of kind of boring (laughs) friend of the person they want to be with who (laughs) is, you know, sort of interested in some other more glamorous or cooler person. So, and if you haven't been in that situation, you can imagine what that feels like, you know? So I actually think that's, not something that's really that unique but i think it works really well and i think it works really well it's a, it is a little bit unrealistic that terry farrell would be in that situation since she's as attractive as Grilka, if not more um <laughs> no offense to Grilka, you know unless klingons klingons are your thing yeah but maybe but, to um, Wolf she's not i mean i suppose that's the thing we don't we don't know you know to what we have to kind of take as read that Wolf thinks Grilka is like absolutely the bee's knees, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like she's this magnificent Klingon woman. She's everything he thought he wanted in a woman. And yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think there is a degree of suspension of disbelief, certainly for me watching this episode and for me ever since I started watching DS9 aged, you know, 12 or something to imagine that you think anyone other than Jadzia Dax is the perfect woman is kind of almost unimaginable. And I kind of think for DS9's writers as well, I, I, I can kind of imagine that's the same for them as well. But at the same time, we do sort of have to buy that. I think you're right. It's unusual for that situation, though, not just that it's Terry Farrell, but also that it's... Well, maybe not. I was going to say it's unusual that it's the woman in that situation. I don't know that that's true. I mean, I've been in that situation on both sides so I guess it does play both ways. But maybe in terms of TV, I feel you'd, or film, I think you'd expect it more to be, you think of it as the man who gets stuck in the friend zone. That's the expression, isn't it? It's this kind of, it's this crisis that men have of being being stuck in that situation. And actually it does happen to women probably just as much, but it's kind of seen as a, as a male problem somehow. Wouldn't you say? Culturally, people sort of talk about it as if it's a male problem. No, I think there's lots of romantic comedies where women are in that situation. I think I think what's different about it is that Jadzia's reaction to it. I think in most romantic comedies, the best friend, the female best friend, sort of just sort of sits there. Um, in fact, that she's not called the female best friend. There's a there's a name for it. She's called something like, I mean, if you look it up online, you can find out what the name for it, name for it is. The popular name for it is something like um, crazy cute girl or something or the the weird girl and she's supposed to be it's, it's like a trope it's like a, it's a trope of a female character who is sort of not the one that the main male protagonist falls in love with but it's it's the character the main male protagonist learns something about himself with do you know what i mean and then he's he's look he's aspiring to be with this unattainable woman who's obviously wrong for him when really he should be with this quirky girl instead and then the, by the end of the film he figures out he's with he what he really loves his best friend then he rushes off normally in the airport in the street in manhattan or something and finds out it's her and then they kiss and make a blah, blah. but i think the difference of this is that Jadzia sees something she wants and she goes after it and power to her, you know, she goes after it. She sees some, sees a man that she wants to be with. She lets him make a bit of a fool of himself. <laughs> and then she's like, you know what? I'm here. I've been here all along and I'm going to make a play for you. And Wolf responds. So whereas in most romantic comedies, mm. the woman would be a lot more passive. You're right. And Jadzia is not passive. I mean, although in the, for most of the story, she is kind of just coasting along, helping. She's not passive. And ultimately it gets to a point where she's like, right. 
I'm fed up with this. I'm going to kind of take charge and sort of things, sort of things out, even if that means doing it in Klingon, because uh, that's the only language that seems to get through to Worf. I think you're right. I was thinking when you were talking about this sort of trope, I was thinking it's, it's also, you know, it's Eponine in Les Mis, uh, which, you know, I've certainly been watching on TV recently, this adaptation that's been going on, you probably have as well. You know, she's the kind of archetype of that character who's the kind of pathetic, you know, the, the friend who is not, who is ignored, who's kind of slighted and, you know, with tragic results. And that again is a sort of tragic story. Um, and I suppose there is this question, does, does unrequited love lead in a tragic direction, you know, as it does with, say, with Odo in Children of Time or, you know, in, in some of these other stories? But Jadzia is someone who's never gonna allow that to happen somehow. I mean, I suppose the closest we see to it is in Rejoined. In Rejoined, you know, by the end of that episode, we do really see her heartbroken. We really see her kind of, totally vulnerable totally kind of you know destroyed by that situation where you know which arguably is it's not so much unrequited love because the the what's her name linara clearly does love her but she's not it is unreciprocated insofar as she's not willing to to take the risks that that jadzia is willing to take there and we do really see her heartbroken in that situation but generally speaking i suppose we see jadzia as a very strong very confident very tough you know she's a woman who knows herself and she's a woman who really knows her own value and i think that's the key to it she knows that wharf is really lucky to you know frankly they all talk about this after jadzia died you know quark is, is sort of saying you know why did she marry that idiot you know he he sh- she was so much above his level and i think there is kind of a an argument for for saying that she sort of knows that she's a pretty good catch as far as Worf is concerned. And she's not afraid to kind of assert that and kind of lay it on the table, basically. Um, and maybe that does, as you say, come from having years worth of experience. Maybe it does come from having male and female past lives to draw on. Uh, maybe it just comes from good writing and slightly out of the box writing from the DS9 writers, you know, who knows? But it's it's one of the things that I think is most attractive about Jadzia as a character is, yes, they've got this woman who, you know, who has done modelling work before, who's extremely beautiful, who's extremely attractive, um, who's, you know, what Rick Berman would call one of the babes that they had to, to put in the Star Trek shows to appeal to men of a certain age. But her characterization is so from the get-go, doesn't play into that. You know, she's very confident. She knows herself. She's a very kind of deep, rich, fun-loving, entertaining, exciting, irreverent character. She, she, she's sort of never going to be reduced to that, that woman on the pedestal, that kind of simplified, one-dimensional figure somehow that almost, you know, that, that is a possibility when they create a character like that and they know this is going to be the, the beauty. This is the one who, you know, we're going to change the makeup because we don't want to make her look ugly and alien. We want to make her look as, as stunning as possible. But fortunately, you know, with Jadzia Dax, they really, I think really aced that in terms of that character. I, I, you know, and just one reason, you know, I think she's certainly one of my favorite Star Trek characters. I think she's a great character. And I think you see it in this episode in the way she reacts in this situation where she doesn't behave the way that we might expect someone, uh, in that storyline to behave. And I do think that despite the fact that we talked about how, you know, unrequited love might not be that realistic in terms of like the rest of the world and other real relationships compared to sort of say fictional relationships and sort of romantic tropes and fiction and stuff. I do think there is something quite realistic about Worf and Jadzia's relationship in the sense that almost, well, very often 
there is normally one person in a relationship who's more charming than the other. And I wouldn't say that's what one of them isn't always going to be this big hulking, like grunting, like irritable, proud individual. I mean, I I like Worf, don't get me wrong, but you know, he is prickly in a social situation compared to Josia, who seems like she'd be a much more smooth operator in, 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 you know, at a party or something. But in lots of relationships throughout the world, there's one member of that relationship who is perhaps the more gregarious one, perhaps maybe the one who's easier to get along with. You know, there's always that situation where one of your friends falls in love with somebody that you're like, oh my God, how did this happen? Why are you with this person? Or or not why you're with this person. I can see they love you. I can see you love them. I can see they support you. But like, you You know, this person's really, (laughs) yeah. Or or this person's really hard to get on with. Right. We're all in a party situation and he's sitting there. Oh God, if your friend gets together with Worf, that's like, you know, (laughs) nightmare, isn't it? (laughs) So I feel that's quite realistic. And I think they play that up a lot in Deep Space Nine as well, you Mm. know, like, of the night before a wedding, Jadzia's partying away and Worf's organised some sort of torture, yeah. like, ceremony in the, <laughs> in the holodeck for all his best men. So there's that kind of thing, you know, they sort of really play up on that. And I think everybody at one point, and actually it's not always a man, a man who's like that. Sometimes it can be a woman as well, you know, mm. um, who's the more difficult one. Opposites do attract, you know, and sometimes people's lives are improved because their partners are the ones that open doors for them and yeah. you know in life so i felt like that was quite a realistic relationship <laughs> so before we go duncan um would you like to let our listeners know if there was ever a time in which you right in order to succeed at something it doesn't have to be romantic pretended to be somebody else other than yourself i i'm gonna have to say i'm gonna be really boring i know i i'm just terrified of being caught i like i I've, I've never lied on my cv i've never plagiarized a single you know word of anything i i think i um probably weirdly like wharf i feel like wharf would the it's weird that wharf gets roped into this because wharf is such a kind of upstanding guy there's there's absolutely no way wharf would play the christian in this situation you know the chris christian role and let someone else tell him what to say because he's this kind of ultimately authentic guy i think i've got a bit of that kind of wharf syndrome i'm like no no i'm not gonna you know i I wouldn't i wouldn't even use a line i'd read in a book or something (laughs) do you know what i mean i'd feel it would make me it would just make me cringe so no probably not i'm afraid sorry (laughs) it is you know you you can rest assured you know if i say it's me on the podcast it it really is i'm not getting someone else to to fill in for me or do the work (laughs) no one's writing no one's writing the lines for me but um but i do think it's interesting it's wharf who gets roped into this because you'd think wharf would be so against it but at the same time and, and it's so dishonorable that's the other thing is klingons are obsessed with honor this ruse is so transparently dishonorable and dishonest uh that again you'd think he would be dead set against it and yet he can't resist the temptation to woo this woman who he's not allowed to woo i suppose what about you have you ever um you know lied on a cv cheated on a test <laughs> it's all coming out now um, I've never lied. I wouldn't say I openly lied. I would say I've acted a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, um, both my husband and I, when we first went on a few, one of our first few dates we went on, he told me that he really liked French noir cinema. Um, so sort of like dark, um, artistic French cinema, uh, to impress me. And which he, I think he watched one film in uni, like he didn't know what he was talking about. And I told him that I really liked clubbing, (laughs) 
which I don't. <laughs> we were trying to act cool around each other. And we very quickly realised that neither of us were like that. So, <laughs> but it was, you know. <laughs> right. Okay. But then you see, that's the terrible thing. Then you end up spending your whole, you know, the first six months of your relationship going to clubs that you both hate and watching awful French films that you can't stand, you know. <laughs> This is the danger. I mean, no, I am familiar with the concept and I know and people do often like, and that's an interesting, I suppose, spin again, like a real world spin on these kind of stories that people do kind of try to reinvent themselves, you know, when they're getting to know someone. You do you do want to put, of course, you want to put your best foot forward. You want to present yourself in a certain way. You want to kind of emphasize some aspects of your personality and de-emphasize others, I suppose. But then you do get these <laughs> ridiculous situations where, you know, people might go for years doing things because they thought the other one uh, was really into it and in fact it turns out that they were both just trying to impress each other and neither of them has any interest in you know watching goddard films or whatever it is and and they've subjected <laughs> themselves to you know hours of torture so i don't know i i i, I would go with a sort of honesty is the best policy i guess i'm i'm more of the kind of jadzia dax approach but i think it's difficult and i, and I can relate you know having said that, i have, have been in you know many of the different kinds of situations that the people are in these stories in these episodes though, though not the kind of elaborate machinations and i think absolutely you know i am sort of in the the jadzia dax camp in a sense you know honesty is the best policy and so on but at the same time it's very hard if you're in that situation to have that kind of self-confidence to have that kind of self-assurance to have that kind of attitude of i am who i am i am lovable i deserve happiness you know if if i'm not for this person i'll be right for someone else you know, and obviously there's a whole sort of industry and a whole sort of, you know, cultural sort of machine geared towards like how to present yourself to the other person, how to, you know, how to behave. I mean, actually, when my partner and I started dating, I discovered a book on her shelf. Now, I don't know whether she'd been following this assiduously or, or not, but there's a book called The Rules. Are you familiar with this? And she she had definitely read some of it, I think. And I don't know whether any of these rules were being used on me. But this was a book for women basically to... I think it's part, part of it was kind of like playing hard to get. Part of it was these kind of things like this, but basically ways to, um, keep men interested, to keep them keen, to kind of play the game, basically. So it turns romance into a kind of, I suppose what you might say is what it was in earlier eras where it would take much, you know, I mean, in Serrano de Bergerac, no one's going to sleep together until they're married. You, you know, in, I mean, in, um, uh, Roxanne, She's not going to sleep with him until she's convinced that he really loves her and he can, he can kind of do all the eloquent stuff. I mean, she, she's requiring this quite sort of old fashioned, quite sort of formal courtship, this kind of wooing. Um, and I suppose, you know, traditionally, if you think of romance, it is the, the, the kind of onus is like on the man to do all this stuff and the woman to kind of keep him at arm's length, to kind of keep testing him, to keep these sort of tests of love, I suppose. And we don't really see romance necessarily in that way these days think hopefully we see it much more as kind of getting to know each other seeing if you feel compatible if you like each other and so on but at the same time there are people publishing you know advice saying you know you kind of advising people to go back to that sort of earlier more formal you know less the kind of generation where you hook up with someone and it's all kind of about chemistry and all quite instant and more into this kind of like sort of courtship rituals and so on which i suppose is what we see as well in the ds9 episode is really as I said, it's about Quark kind of learning the rituals to woo a Klingon woman, learning how to do it, how to kind of what it is that's going to impress her. Not so much in Serrano where it's about the language. And it is quite funny. I mean, even going back to the original play, there's the great scene where um Christian does 
think he can do it himself. He tries to do it. And all he can say, he keeps saying, I love you, which is, you know, and he does. He does love her. It's genuine. It's not fake. But he can't say anything else. And she, she, she sort of says, yes, say more, say more, you know, expound on it. Tell, tell me how you love me. Tell me more about it. And he's just like, I, I love you. I, I don't, you, you know, that's all he can come up with. He can't come up with the kind of grand <laughs> phrases and so on. Um, and on one level, I feel quite sympathetic to him because I feel like, well, I don't know that it's true that he, that just because he can't come up with the sort of soaring oratory that it's any less genuine. But she's very, she's quite harsh, Roxanne. As soon as he, and in the film, in the Steve Martin film, they managed to justify her harshness by having him say quite crude and inappropriate things. So he makes this joke about her being a playboy centrefold, which he's picked up off another kind of lechy guy in the street. So it's understandable why she gets so angry with him. But in the original play, it's literally just like he can't, he, he sort of seems to have lost the gift of the gab and she's just like, right, I'm totally not interested now. You know, if you, if you can't woo me with words, then forget it, basically. And it is that kind of idea of like, you know, is what, what are the kind of rituals of courtship? Is it just maybe as we sit today, getting to know someone, getting to know each other, finding out what you have in common, finding out if you're kind of compatible, if you care about the same things, if there's a chemistry and so on? Or is it a kind of in the more old-fashioned sense, a sort of series of tests and, and sort of pretty much deliberately setting each other tests and seeing if they pass or fail them. And, and you know, that, that sort of idea from that kind of old style of courtship where really, you know, you might be setting the person the test, hoping that they'll keep passing the test, but at the same time, you have to still keep doing it and it has to be quite sort of stringent and you really are kind of putting the prospective lover through their paces somehow, which I suppose is, you know... It's certainly what we see in Serrano. It's certainly what we see also in the DS9 episode. I mean, really, you know, Quark is is being put through his paces. The fact is she's interested in him pretty much from the get-go, but she's not going to have that wild night of violent Klingon passion that sees them both end up in (laughs) hospital the next morning uh, without him kind of, you know, ticking all the right boxes. (sighs) So there you go, guys. (laughs) Honesty is the best policy, but if you want something like, I don't know, a little bit more exotic. (laughs) (laughs) You might have to do your research, yeah. You might have to do your research. You know, like if there's some sort of crazy ritual with your your lover of choice, (laughs) then, uh, you know, consult somebody. Maybe get someone to write some letters for you, get someone to write some lines, um, teach you how to use a sword or something. (laughs) So it has been really interesting taking a look at the world of unrequited love of uh, catfishing in Star Trek of looking for Parmak in all the wrong places of Jazia Dax and her awesome confidence in romantic affairs and at Sarano de Bergerac but this is not the only subject that's been discussed on the network this week so here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM Previously on Trek.FM Literary Treks like you said, some of the recent novels have gone with Commander Una, uh, which is, if I'm remembering correctly, they explain a name she's kind of adopted because she got tired of people just calling her number one or something like that. But it's still referring to this backstory of her being the best of the best, being perfect from Illyria, which is a planet that embraces uh, genetic manipulation, I think, and, and you know, that sort of thing, and, and breeding for the absolute best, and she was number one in her generation or something like that. Melodic Treks. So, but after I watched Star Trek Voyager, uh, and, you know, I was aware of the existence of the uh, Minimoog Voyager, 
Uh, I mean, it didn't take me long to just like, oh, it would be cool one day, like if I could acquire the the synth, you know, like the first thing I do with it is redo the Star Trek Voyager theme with it. Then wouldn't that be fun, you know, the Star Trek Voyager theme with performed by the Minimoog Voyager, right? <laughs> Warp five. So I'm gonna go to Sleeping Dogs for my next next episode here now. At this point in Star Trek, I'm really tired of the Klingons, and I was on my original watch of Enterprise, and I still am. I'm really, really tired of the Klingons, so... Did I say the right episode? Sleeping Dogs, I said, right? Yes. You're just looking at me funny here. I'm like, did I say Shadows of Pajama? <laughs> no, 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 you said Sleeping Dogs. <laughs> okay, good. So... The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. She is with a fake him, and she even says, well, it's you, but it's really only my memory of you. Right. That line is heartbreaking. Yeah. I'm not the sappiest person on the planet by any stretch of the imagination. Anyone who has heard me talk for months on this network knows that. But this is heartbreaking stuff. Yeah. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash TrekFM to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash TrekFM. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended, all right. But do, do you, when you're driving along, do you ever think, oh, sacrable, I've forgotten to set the video to record, I don't know, Top Gear? 
What is uh, what is Top Gear? Uh, it's not. Uh, uh, all right then. Um, you've forgotten to tape uh, Serrano de Bergerac with Gerard Depardieu. 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 De. De. Par. Par. Dieu. 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 It's not important, Alan. Right. <laughs>